So I was very, very blessed to grow up with a, with a church family that really did love God, loved people, had a passion for God's word. I don't know where I would be today if it weren't for my home church, if it weren't for the strong foundation I received from my, my parents, my family, and my church family growing up. But, and you knew there was a but coming, right? But there seemed to be some topics that, that my home church avoided addressing, and maybe they did address it and I just was too young or they're not paying attention or I just didn't understand it growing up. But for instance, I, I don't remember my home church preaching on the topic of sex. In fact, I think there are a lot of churches that avoid this topic because maybe it's awkward to talk about or maybe they're uncomfortable addressing it. I'm not uncomfortable addressing it. Uh, the Bible talks quite a bit about sex. And yet if the church ignores it and if people aren't reading their Bibles, uh, then, then we're going to live in a world where sex is distorted. And even people who say that they follow Christ, they're not going to have a biblical worldview when it comes to sexuality. And I think we see that today, don't we? Right? Another topic that my church seemed to avoid was what we just sang about, the topic of the Holy Spirit. Like talking about God the Father was commonplace. Talking about Jesus was easy, right? But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a little more mysterious and maybe we didn't want to be labeled as charismatic or something. I, I don't know. You know, like if someone said amen in my church, we were like, whoa, easy now. Settle it down, right? Uh, and so my, my home church tended not to address it. And maybe that's why it's difficult for some people to live a spirit-led life. Maybe that's why some people ignore the spirit's prompting in their life because they, they don't understand it. Because it hasn't really been talked about. Kind of in that same vein, another topic that my home church seemed to avoid was the topic of spiritual warfare. And I think with this one, it's not because it's some awkward topic to talk about. I think it, it was avoided because it, it's unseen. And therefore, again, it's hard to understand. It's hard to understand something we can't see. But as I look around at the world that we live in today, and as I study my Bible, it's obvious to me that, that we are in the middle of a cosmic spiritual battle. And that's why today we're starting a new series called Spiritual Warfare. We're, we're just going to do a short series. It's three weeks. It's definitely short compared to our 10-week our series we did on the Ten Commandments. But we want to be aware of the fact that we are in the middle of a spiritual cosmic battle. And though 2020 seems so different and there's so many things going on in, in this year, this spiritual battle we, in, we are in isn't anything new. It's not new to 2020, right? It has been going on since the creation of the world. And in actuality, it is a battle which is not yet to be determined. We, we know the outcome, right? We know who wins. It's a battle, though, that has two sides. And every person has to decide which side they're going to join. And I'm not talking about Democrat and Republican here. We, we choose a side. We can't sit this battle out either. Like remaining neutral is choosing a side. Mo Moses framed it this way to the Israelites in Deuteronomy. He said, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Later, Joshua urged the people to, to follow him in choosing life, to choose this day to serve the Lord. And the psalmist and the prophets of old, they would make the same plea. Jesus would say in John 14, 6, that I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. There is a side. There's only one side. 
Only one way that brings life. And that's the appeal of the rest of the New Testament. To choose Jesus. To choose life. One of the greatest reminders for us that there is a spiritual battle going on though is, is when Paul writes this in Ephesians 6. He said, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So it's, it's easy in our world to dis, get distracted and to think that our enemy is Al-Qaeda or another political party or a bully or our boss or our com, a competitor or our mother-in-law. But Paul is reminding us here in Ephesians 6 who our real enemy is. So today, as we begin this series, I want us to simply start by talking about who our enemy is, like knowing our enemy Specifically, I want us to answer these two questions. Who is this enemy and how does this enemy work? Who is this enemy and how does the enemy work? Okay, so first question, who is the enemy? Again, Paul reminds us that this enemy is not flesh or blood. It's not about a person. Our enemy instead is in the unseen world. The Bible calls our enemy Satan. So the name Satan means adversary. And this in name indicates Satan's basic nature. That he is the adversary, the enemy of God. He is the enemy of all that God does. He is the enemy of all that God loves. There are several other names or, or titles that are used uh, for Satan in the Bible. He, he's also called the devil. Some of you are thinking of Waterboy, right? Mama, you think everything's a devil. But the <laughs> That's not funny to some of you. Devil means false accuser or slanderer. False accuser or slanderer. Another name for the devil or Satan is Beelzebub or Beelzebul. You'll read it both ways. It's a name derived from Baal-zebub, meaning Lord of the Fly. Baal-zebub was actually a false god of the Philistines in Ekron. Another description or title of Satan is Prince of Demons. He's called the Tempter, the Evil One, the Enemy, the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Another name is Lucifer. Now, we often read uh, from the New International Version of the Bible while we're up here. Um, it's just, a, it's an easier to comprehend translation. But the NIV does not use the word Lucifer in, in, the, in that version, in that translation. Instead, it uses what Lucifer means. And it means morning star. So if you're reading Isaiah 14, you'll read the word morning star instead of Lucifer. There are also some titles that point to Satan's authority in the world. One title is he's called the prince of this world. He's called the god of this age. He's called the prince of the power of the air. In addition to providing names and titles of Satan, the Bible also uses some metaphors to reveal the character of the enemy. Jesus in the parable of the four soils compared Satan to the bird that snatches the seed off the hardened ground. In another parable, Satan appears as the sower of the weeds among the wheat. Satan is compared to a wolf in John 10, 12, compared to a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5, 8. And in Revelation 12, 9, Satan is called the great dragon, the serpent of old. Obviously a reference to the serpent who deceived Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Now, there's a whole lot we don't know about Satan, but we do know enough to identify him. So here are some things that we do know about him. We know, first of all, that he is a real being. 
He's a real being. I shouldn't have to say this in a room full of Christians that, that he is real, but there are many people in the Western world who simply do not believe that the devil is real. They imagine that the devil is just made up like a, like a fairy tale, that they use the devil as an allegory to scare people into right behavior. And many of us, I, I bet if we think of the devil, we all, all of a sudden have a cartoonish version of him pop into our head, like this red devil with horns and a cape and a pitchfork. And because of that picture, we, we sometimes don't take the devil seriously. But the Bible never once implies that the devil is not real. The Bible never once uh, indicates that the devil is just an allegory. The devil is real. This battle is real. And, and I'm afraid that far too many of us, we've not taken this enemy seriously. We also know that, that the devil is a created being. And so as a created being, this means that the devil is subordinate to God. In Job chapter 1, we get this glimpse into the unseen world. And so the devil shows up into the throne room of God along with the angels. And so we read this. It says, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. So we, we believe that God has a purpose for every created being, including you and me. We have a purpose that also includes the devil. Remember I said that one of the names of Satan is Lucifer and it can be translated as, as morning star. It also means to shine a light on or to test like a, a star would, you know, expose with light. So it means to shine a light on or to test. And so there are some scholars that believe that the devil's purpose as a created angel, he was once an angel, as a created angel was to roam throughout creation like he was doing in Job chapter 1 and to shine a light on or to test, to test creation and then report back to God the glory and the perfection of his work. Well, the problem is that Satan wanted this glory for himself. In Isaiah chapter 14, Isaiah uses the story of Satan as a demonstration of the fate of the king of Babylon. And he writes this, he says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star. Okay, that would be Lucifer. How you've fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Did you catch that? Satan was saying, I will make myself like the Lord Most High. But he was brought down. As a created being, he's, he was subject to his creator, just like we are. For his selfish desire, Satan was kicked out of heaven. And just a reminder, Jesus is eternal. And Jesus was there when it happened. He told his disciples in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's believed in Revelation chapter 12. It's a picture of not only Satan's ejection from heaven, but also how one-third of the angels, they sided with him. They chose a losing side, and they were also kicked out of heaven. Here's what happened to the devil, Revelation 12, 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he, the dragon, was not strong enough. 
and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And these fallen angels are what we believe to be demons who essentially work for Satan. Well, what else do we know about Satan? We, we also know that he is a powerful being. So yes, Satan is a created being. And yes, he is inferior to God. But that doesn't mean he isn't powerful. He is not all powerful. Only God is. But he does have some power. In 2 Peter 2, we're told that angels are stronger and they're more powerful than humans. And Satan, he has this uncanny ability to deceive us. To deceive us if we are not spiritually cautious. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the next couple of weeks. But again, he's not all powerful, but he does have some power. He's not all knowing, but he's not stupid either. He is a manipulator and he knows how to deceive. He knows how to play people. So he cannot make you sin. You can't give the excuse, well, the devil made me do it, right? But he can deceive you into thinking that sin is good for you if you're not cautious. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, as I mentioned earlier, Paul describes Satan as the God of this age. And listen to what he says. He says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So calling him the God of this age kind of indicates he has some power, right? He's blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So he blinds us. He deceives us. He turns our attention away from the light of the gospel and away from Christ. And he tries to use people to carry out his work. Paul warned about these people that carry out the, the deceiving work of the devil. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, he writes, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. As I said earlier, I think a lot of us, we picture the devil in red with a pitchfork and horns and a forked tongue. But in reality, Satan probably, probably looks pretty good, pretty enticing. Paul says that he masquerades as an angel of light. He doesn't masquerade as something ugly or scary, but as something that looks good, something that looks appealing, something that attracts. So we are warned to watch out for him. We're warned to watch out for his deceptive ways because he does have some power. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's looking to pounce on his prey and take them down. But in addition to being a powerful deceiver, he is a powerful and strong and consistent accuser. I found this a few days ago and I liked it, this little picture of the contrast between the voice of God and the voice of Satan. God's voice, it stills you, but Satan's voice, it rushes you. God's voice leads you. Satan's voice pushes you. God's voice reassures you. Satan's voice frightens you. God's voice enlightens you. Satan's voice, it confuses you. God's voice encourages you. Satan's voice discourages you. God's voice comforts you. Satan's worries you. God's voice calms you. Satan's obsesses you. God's voice, it convicts you. Satan's voice, it condemns you. Satan is a, an accuser. He condemns. He knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. And he leaves you feeling hopeless and helpless. Though we are sinners, 
Though God's voice convicts us, Jesus is our advocate. He is our mediator and he stands for us and he stands with us in front of God. What a dynamic contrast between the two. Why is it though that Satan accuses us? Why does he condemn us? Why does he want to bring us down? Because this is what, what else we know about Satan. He hates us. He hates us. You see, you and I, we have the opportunity for salvation, but Satan does not. The devil cannot be saved because God cast him out and condemned him to his final destination already. God did not send his son to redeem angels. God sent Jesus to redeem humanity. So the devil cannot be saved and he is stunned by the resounding defeat of the cross. And he is forever intrigued by what God did through Jesus at Calvary. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.12 that even angels long to look into these things. They're intrigued by that. Well, what things is he talking about? He's talking about gospel things. The devil hates us and he hates the gospel. So now that we know a little bit more about who our enemy is, let's talk about his tactics. Again, Satan is nothing compared to God. But because we live in a world where there is the freedom to choose, where God has given us this freedom to choose, the devil's tactics can be very effective. And so how does the devil work? How does the enemy work? Well, he works through cell phones that go off in the middle of a sermon. I'm kidding. That's so embarrassing. I do that all the time. (laughs) Anyway, so how does the enemy work? Uh, Although our enemy is not flesh and blood, our enemy uses the hearts and the actions of flesh and blood people to carry out his tactics. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul warns us not to be ignorant of Satan's tactics. He, He says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, we don't want to be outwitted by Satan, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So the Greek word for schemes here is methodia, and and it's where we get the word methods from. So what are his methods? We we don't want to be unaware of his schemes. We don't want to be unaware of his methods. So what methods does he use? Well, there are a lot of them, but here are the most common three tactics that he uses. And the first is he uses the strategy to destroy us. He wants to destroy us. In John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. In contrast, Jesus says, well, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. So Satan wants to destroy, to cause ruin, to to bring about destruction. Satan knows his own destruction is coming. And so he wants to bring as many people down as he can in the meantime. He wants to destroy. He wants to destroy human life. Going back to Genesis, Satan had to have been cheering it on when Cain killed Abel. And he has to be cheering every time that there is a murder, a mass murder, a genocidal murder, an in utero murder. In John 8, Jesus called Satan a murderer from the beginning. He, he wants to also destroy your confidence in the truth of God's word. This is what he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Remember, he, he asked, did God really say that? Questioning God's word. And he still does that today. In fact, there's a whole branch of theology called apologetics where we learn to give a defense of the Christian faith. In fact, we have an apologetics group led by Luke tonight, meeting here tonight at 6 p.m. You ought to come out and and be a part of it. The reason we, we have this branch of theology is because we live in a world full of skeptics. You work with them. You talk with them. You're around them every day. People who question God's word. 
And Satan has done a masterful job of destroying many people's confidence in the truth of God's word. Satan wants to destroy. He wants to destroy marriages. He wants to destroy families. He wants to destroy your reputation, destroy your life. Wherever you see destruction by human hands, know that it had its beginning in the dark mind of the devil. Another tactic of Satan is to divide us. He wants to divide us. If the devil can't destroy us, then he wants to divide us. And doesn't it seem like this has been a pretty successful tactic of his? Our world seems so divided right now. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, when the Pharisees basically accused Jesus of, of being the devil, Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. It'll be destroyed. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Now, Satan doesn't want his kingdom divided, but he sure wants to divide God's kingdom. And I I feel like if you drive around the area right now, if you would walk out and drive around the area this morning, you would see a lot of division among believers today. We are divided by race. We're divided by doctrine. We're divided over methods. Christ's church is divided I've told this joke before, but I think it's worth repeating because it it drives home a point. Comedian Emo Phillips, he wrote this joke about our tendency as Christians to obsess over differences between us, all the while ignoring what we have in common, the many beliefs and practices that we have in common. And so here's this story, this joke that he told. He said, once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, and I said, don't do it. He said, well, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What denomination? He said, Baptist. Me too. Northern Baptist or or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist conservative or or Northern liberal Baptist? He said, Northern conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. He said, I said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1912. And I said, die heretic. And I pushed him over the edge. (laughs) And as funny as that might be, we, we know It's a reflection of what's happened in the church, isn't it? And isn't that one of the greatest tragedies of our time? That even among Christians, there's so much animosity and division. And it has to be one of Satan's greatest strategies to divide us. Why would he do this? Why would he want to divide us? We know. Because when we're divided, it destroys our reputation and our credibility to those outside of the church. And it limits our effectiveness in carrying out the mission of Jesus when we don't work together. The Apostle Paul urged believers to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Jesus would pray that his his followers would be one, that they would be united Paul told the Corinthian church, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And Jude, the brother of Jesus, would warn us to watch out for people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Satan would love to divide us. Some of you, you've seen it happen. You've been a part of a church that's split over the dumbest of reasons. It had nothing to do with the lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of his word. It had to do with the color of a carpet or something ridiculous like that. Satan would love to divide us. But if he can't destroy us, and if he can't divide us, then he can at least try to distract us. Think we have any distractions in our world right now? Squirrel, right? We are so distracted. My, my wife, she is, she is so good at distracting. When our daughters were toddlers and they were trying to get into something that they weren't supposed to get into, uh, she would distract them out of it. When they had like a little boo-boo and they couldn't, you know, focus on anything else but that boo-boo, she was so good at distracting them. She, she's a first grade teacher and I've seen her in the classroom just distract the students away from what they shouldn't be doing. We recently, we, we got a kitten. And that kitten... <laughs> That thing just wants to play all the time. He will attack my feet and I'll try and like push him away and then he just comes back and attacks my feet and I get so annoyed with that thing and he just keeps coming back to me. But Sarah just distracts the cat with a toy or something and he, he leaves her alone. Now I'm not calling my wife the devil. Far from it. <laughs> Please don't hear that. But, but distracting is a useful tactic in steering people where you want them to go or steering people away from somewhere that you don't want them to go. Honestly, distraction might be one of Satan's greatest tactics. Satan would love for us to have our attention diverted away from the gospel, away from Jesus, away from Christ's mission. Satan would love for me to focus my attention on my schedule, my finances, my work, my kids, their activities, their sports, running them around. He, he would love for me to, to pay attention, close attention to the news and social media and politics and video games and football. And for the most part, these, these aren't even bad things. Oftentimes, they're, they're good things. But when my attention is constantly diverted to these things, then I lose focus on Christ. I lose focus on the fact that there are people all around me who are hurting, who are in need, and who are headed to a Christless eternity. You remember the story of Jesus walking on the water and Peter comes out of the boat to walk on the water with him. And what happened to Peter? When he, when he lost sight of Jesus and he focused on the wind of the waves, he, he began to sink. Satan is skilled at diverting our attention. He hangs shiny things in front of us and we take the bait. And then we don't even realize how far away from Christ we have gone as he slowly distracts us away. So let me be clear. This battle is real. The devil is real. He is our enemy and he wants to destroy us, divide us, and distract us. So what do we do? What do we do about this enemy? What do we do about his tactics? Well, that's really what we're going to talk about for the rest of this series, but kind of as a, a precursor to it, we, we need to live in the victory that is already ours. A few years ago, I, I had DVR'd an Ohio State football game, and so I was watching it, and it was the fourth quarter, and it was a really close game, and, and you know, we're not used to being in close games. So 
I'm just kidding. You guys are like, you're a jerk. <laughs> so I wasn't up to live TV yet. And a friend of mine, he texted me. And like an idiot, I, I looked at the text and I read it. And it said, wow, that was a close one. Glad we pulled that one out. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so I basically found out that Ohio State won the game, which is great. And at first, though, I was a little upset because I was still watching this game as it was unfolding. But in another sense, there was this comfort and knowing that, that even though it was a tight game, even though I, I knew it was close and I didn't know who was going to win, now I knew the outcome. And I didn't need to be nervous for my team anymore. In this world that we live in right now, it can seem very tense. It can seem very frustrating. And it can feel like, man, are we in a losing battle here? We need to have confidence in the outcome of this battle. We know the outcome of this battle, and victory is already ours. Colossians 2.15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus triumphed over the powers and authorities that are our real enemy. And I love it. It says he made a public spectacle of them. Isn't that great, great word picture there? The writer of Hebrews said this about Jesus and what he did to the devil. He said, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Jesus took on flesh and blood as well. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who, are, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So we need to understand this, that we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting with victory. We're not fighting for victory. The outcome is already determined. We know that Jesus is victorious. Instead, we are fighting with victory. The victory is already secured if you want it. But you have to choose the side of victory. So choose wisely. Choose Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get bombarded with messages day in and day out of how awful things are in our world, it can lead to a lot of despair and hopelessness. It can make us think that we're in a losing battle, that, that good does not ultimately triumph over evil, but we know that's just not true. That's just not true. So God, I pray that we wouldn't view other people as our enemy. Far from it. They are people made in your image. People who have had your son die on the cross for them as well. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is in the unseen world. So God, we can't fight this battle with flesh and blood. We need a greater power. And so you took on flesh and blood and came to this earth, became human, fought this battle, <laughs> conquered over sin by living a sinless life, and then took the punishment that we deserved, paid the price that needed to be paid, that we couldn't pay ourselves. And you defeated 
through the cross and through your resurrection, you defeated death, sin, and the grave. And so God, though there might be some battles that seem like there is just no hope, I pray that we will cling to you. We will rest in the palm of your hand that you would secure us. And that when we are on your side, we know we will be victorious. Not because of anything that we've done, but because you've gone before us and defeated the enemy. His destination is already determined. And so God, I pray that we would not allow him to take another person in Taze Valley with him. God, you have placed us in this area for a reason. So God, I pray that we would make it difficult to go to hell in this area because of the work that is taking place in us and through us. God, may we have confidence in your victory. May we not walk with our heads hung low. May we walk in that hope and in that victory each and every day. God, if there are those in here who are not sure what side they're on, I pray today that they would choose this day who they will follow and that they would choose to follow Jesus. He is worth battling with. He is worth worshiping. He is worth following. We thank you for what he has done for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. So this morning, we want to give you the opportunity to to declare what side you're on. If you've not declared a side, you have declared a side. And it is the losing side. But there's still time. (laughs) There's still time to join the winning side. So if you've never chosen Jesus, we want to give you the opportunity to choose Jesus today. I'm going to be up here to your right as we sing this last song. I would love to talk to you about what it means to choose him, to follow him, to trust in him. Maybe just today you need some prayer because you're not feeling like you can walk in that victory that he's already established. I would love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you as we sing this next song. I'll have my mask on and be up here to your right. Will you stand and sing with me?